0: Americans are paying more for drugs than Germans or Swedes or Canadians.
1: 34 million Americans have lost a family member or friend in the last five years because of high drug
0: costs. There's no reason for an EpiPen to cost more than 25 bucks. We have a completely broken market when it comes to prescription drugs.
2: We need to make sure that the industry is aligned with the goals and needs of society.
3: From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, an honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone.
0: I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures.
3: I'm Jasmine Weaver. I'm the executive vice president here at Civic Ventures, and I do a lot of our policy work, including our work on minimum wage.
0: So Jasmine, in this episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about the debacle, which is uh, pharma pricing, pharma drug pricing in the USA. It's not a surprise to listeners that drug prices in the USA are wildly inflated. On average, people in other countries spend about 56% of what Americans spend on exactly the same drug. But I know you you did some work on this uh, earlier in your career, didn't you?
3: Yeah, about 10 years ago, I did some advocacy on prescription drugs and prescription drug prices. And to me, it's just amazing to see how things have just gotten worse.
0: It's really terrible and getting more dire all the time. And, you know, the pod is devoted to these broad economic issues. And what's particularly acute is that, you know, for most folks, their wages have been flat for 40 years. but. You know, critical life inputs like uh, prescription drugs and all kinds of drugs are have gone up every year. You know, so it's a terrible uh, double whammy. And and the statistics really are dire. One in four Americans report they are a family mem- member didn't fill a prescription in in the past year because of because of cost.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is something that impacts either you know I'm sure our listeners or people that our listeners know, and it's really it's really tragic because these are not nice to have things these are things that people absolutely need for their quality of life and their health and their longevity so it's critical
0: you know this is stuff that is hitting people super hard and I, i think you know if there's a silver lining it is that folks are finally waking up to this crisis and there's new interest in congress around it and certainly a lot of folks are mobilizing to try to make this better and on this podcast we get to talk to two fantastic people about this. First, uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Prithi Khristel, who's the co-founder and co-executive director of IMAC, which is basically a global nonprofit devoted to trying to reform the patent systems that enable these drug companies to hold their prices up for basically an infinite amount of time. And then also our friend John Arnold from Arnold Ventures, who has been at the forefront of fighting the political and advocacy fight On these issues. So it should be a fascinating conversation with both of them.
3: Absolutely. I think it's really exciting because both of these people are attacking this issue in very different ways. You know, Prithi is going to talk about Uh, something that's often blind to people, which is, you know, a broken system, not our healthcare system, which is absolutely broken, but the part before the healthcare system, which is how these drug companies can monopolize the market and drive up prices even before they enter our healthcare system. And then John, you know, talking about the really innovative work they've done to try to attack this broken system and think of ways that shift power and try to solve the system. So two really great guests and how to approach solving this very complex problem.
0: Should be really cool. Uh,
1: my name is Preeti Krishchel. I'm the co-founder and co-executive director of an organization called IMAC, the Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge IMAC was co-founded in 2006, and we worked to fix the patent system because it's driving drug prices out of reach and costing human
0: life. I'd be very interested in starting with you giving us kind of a lay of the land. Tell us what the problem is, particularly in the United States, and what problems generally are you trying to solve?
3: So
1: when we launched our U.S. program in 2016, we realized that There was very little information available to the public about medicine monopolies. We also call those patent walls. So last year, we produced a report called Overpatented Overpriced that investigated these patent walls on the top 12 best-selling drugs in America. Now, these drugs have very high patent walls. And what I mean by that is that pharmaceutical companies, on average, had filed 125 patents for these drugs. So this Each allows companies or total. To, so on average some had many many more and some had less. Wow. That's right. So it, what happens is it allows companies to go from 20 years of monopoly protection, which is what the law allows, to nearly 40 years or even longer. Yeah. And during oh. that time, prices sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
0: no, we're stunned. <laughs> you yeah, you're just stu- hearing yeah. people be stunned. Okay, keep going. <laughs>
1: So prices for these medicines, now these medicines we looked at, the 12 best-selling drugs in the country, have all been on the market for 15 years already. But now what we're seeing is prices have increased by an average of 68% since 2012. That's over seven times the rate of inflation. So that's the core of the problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Unbelievable. <laughs> and w- when these prices should be coming down, as scale economies are achieved?
1: That's Right. So after a patent expires, we should have competition, right? And we're not getting the competition we need.
0: So typical best-selling drug has a 100 separate patents filed around it, and one of the outcomes that the drug maker is trying to produce is to lengthen the time of patent protection from the statutory 20 years to 40 years by continuing to lay on patents, That's right. Holy crap.
3: I mean, that's astounding. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what type of drugs are in these 12 drugs and how they might impact people? Because I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to understand what kind of drugs we're talking about.
1: Absolutely. There's drugs in the top 12 best-selling drugs in the country that are for diabetes, that are for rheumatoid arthritis, that are for breast cancer. Uh, They're really for a variety of conditions. One thing that we found really interesting, actually, when we were looking at the data is that these drugs, by and large, disproportionately impact seniors. And so that's why we're hearing from seniors around the country that they're really struggling to be able to afford their medicines.
0: I realize this is sort of a goofy question, but how many dollars do these top 12 drugs represent annually? Do you have any idea?
1: I could give you an example on yeah, one of the sure, drugs,
0: if sure. that's useful.
1: So Humira is America's top-selling drug, and it treats rheumatoid arthritis, as I just mentioned. And Americans aren't going to get cheaper versions of this drug until 2023. So we called in our report, uh, Abvi, the company – Our worst offender, AbbVie, had filed for 247 patents on this drug at the time the report was released in 2018, and 136 at that time had been granted. So just to put that in perspective, that's nearly four times the number of patents they filed for in Europe or Japan. And because of that lengthened monopoly period we were just talking about, the cost to Americans is at least an extra $14 billion compared to other countries
0: per year or an aggregate?
1: So it depends on the time period. America spends about $13 billion a year on Humira. So if you look at the next 10 years, for example, we're looking at nearly $100 billion.
0: Unbelievable.
3: Wow.
1: On one drug. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty surreal.
3: Can you talk a little bit about just the basics, which is, why we in this country give companies a 20-year patent because you know there's there's economic reasons why we do that but then to extend it for another 20 years giving a company a monopoly on something for 20 years should be something that's highly regulated and highly reasoned why we do that so can you talk a little bit about what rationale is being given both for the 20 years which i just think is helpful background information and then that extra 20 years
1: Sure. So the patent system was originally brought in by the founding fathers to motivate people to invent. At that time, you know, they rewarded inventors with a time-limited monopoly that was supposed to be a 14-year maximum. And over time, understandably, inventors asked for more and more protection, which is why today we have 20 years allowed by law. And it's supposed to be a social contract. You know, an inventor gets a reward of this monopoly period, during which time they're the only ones on the market. And then after that time limited monopoly ends, the public gets competition and gets the benefit of that invention much more cheaply over time, that's been eroded. The lobbies have been very successful in either trying to lengthen the time period or asking for extra protections and exclusivities, or what we're seeing now is that there's a lot of legal innovation. It's innovation by the lawyers to figure out where are the loopholes in the system, how can we game the system, and hold on to our monopolies as long as possible. And I think what's really positive right now is that legislators seem to be at the beginning of understanding what these games are and trying to figure out how to stop them. But it's going to take a lot of public pressure to actually get
3: policies that stop this kind of gaming. And who are the winners and the losers? Who's benefiting from this and who's losing out?
1: That's a great question. There's a reason that drug prices are top of mind going into the election this year. According to a recent Gallup West Health poll, 34 million Americans have lost a family member or friend in the last five years because of high drug costs. So in that sense, every American is being affected, right? Because either your own health or the health of your family is costing you money, or as taxpayers, this is costing us money because our public programs are spending money on these medicines. Our most vulnerable communities, those are who are incarcerated, women, senior citizens, these are the folks who are bearing the brunt of what's happening. So we are all losing in this moment. Who's winning are our biggest drug makers. This is really a war of attrition. You know, the more patents you file, the more you keep putting pressure on the patent office. The more patents you're being granted and you're lengthening your monopoly period and keeping your prices high.
0: Our understanding is that this problem is the worst in the developed world in the United States of America. Is that true?
1: I would say based on our data, that is what we're seeing. You know, like I told you about Humira, we saw that in America, companies are filing Almost four times the number of patents they're filing, even in other developed countries like Europe or Japan. And so, lengthening the monopoly period here is happening because our patent system here in America is allowing for more patent filing and more granted patents. We need to raise the bar and not hand out so many patents, except for truly breakthrough inventions. And we need to amend the incentives. You know, right now, How the patent office runs, its bank account is directly tied to the number of patents it grants. It runs on the maintenance fees that it gets from granted patents. So we have to change that as well.
0: Wow. In general, Americans are paying more for drugs than Germans or Swedes or Canadians or Australians, correct? That's
1: right. In general, that's certainly true.
0: Can you give us some examples?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, that situation is very complicated because it relates to a lot of things, right? It relates to our healthcare system yeah. and how we think about paying for drugs. Specifically on the patent issue, I think that our over patenting syndrome. Is supporting that system to keep drug prices high. One example is the breast cancer drug Herceptin. For a one year course, Herceptin costs somewhere in the range of about $70,000. And that drug, which is sold by Roche and Genentech, had its first patents filed on it in 1985. Now, Roche was filing so many patent applications on it because it was trying to extend its monopoly until 2033 which would have given them about 48 years of complete and total market dominance. Now, luckily that didn't happen. We now have two competitive products on the U S market that are 15% cheaper, but more competitors would have meant that prices could have come down even more. What Roche did was they made settlements with a number of companies that delayed their entry. And then in turn, that delays a more competitive market. So we're seeing you know, a whole toolbox of tactics being used, the over patenting, the settlements with competitors, the launch of new combination products. How can that
0: not be antitrust? Uh, like,
1: how, how can that not? Yeah, no, it's a great question. This is a major issue we have in the States right now. You know, we need expanded authority for the FTC to be able to pursue this type of activity as antitrust activity. And unfortunately, the law is not set up that way right now. And that's going to have to be a core part of any reforms that we look for in the coming years.
3: That's shocking to me. I mean, if another company decided to buy out its competitors and prevent it from providing, that would be antitrust. I mean, that would be, well, you can't yeah. do it in another industry.
0: Or you don't have to buy them out. So, All you have to do is do a deal with them to say, yeah. don't enter the market so I can keep my Price is high? It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Pay for delay is what it's called. It's come under a lot of scrutiny. What the Um, as of late. (laughs) And certainly the practice has been curbed a lot in recent years, but we're still seeing this type of activity. You know, in some ways we're really concerned that we actually don't have a true generic competitive market anymore. Yeah. And that concern is growing. We need to be able to strengthen Uh, the ability to have a competitive market
3: going forward. Prithi, what you're highlighting is so important because it's very clear that we have a completely broken market when it comes to prescription drugs. Now, one thing that's interesting is anytime people try to, and I'm sure you hear this argument all the time, when people talk about this and say, look, you know, we look around the world, we see people being able to access these drugs at far lower prices in other markets. Why can't we have that in the US? And one of the things you hear as a response is, well, we have to pay higher prices because we need to make sure that these companies can invest in research to keep creating these important life-saving drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear your response to how you respond to these type of arguments, because they're very frequent and, and you hear them in you know, many different forms.
1: Absolutely. I usually answer this question in two parts. First, this is a scare tactic, As of 2017, research showed that 89% of the industry's revenue is actually coming from older repurposed products. That means that only 11% of the industry's revenue is coming from newly launched products or products that were launched in the last five years. So our system is not right now incentivizing new research and development as much as it could be. The other thing I like to raise is that I think it's a really dangerous argument that is being advanced to frame this, that other countries are getting drugs in such an affordable way, when in reality, over 2 billion people around the world live without access to medicines and governments, including in developed countries and the emerging markets, are actually struggling to pay for treatment. So drugs are being overpriced all around the world. It's just that here in America, we're paying even more. And so we're bearing the brunt of it more than most.
3: That's a helpful framework. I, I appreciate that because that's not, You know, I don't always think about that. And I th- I think we do frame it frequently as other people have access and we don't and for the most part. And so thank you for clarifying that. It's a great point.
0: So uh, Preeti, tell us what are the top five things <laughs> we should change? <laughs> like if you were dictator for a day, what would you do?
1: It's really funny you ask the question that way, because we just named the top five solutions that we see as the most promising. We named them RAISE, (laughs) R-A-I-S-E. So the first is that we think that we need to raise the bar. We just shouldn't be allowing hundreds of patents to be filed on a single medicine. So we need to reform the law and take care of that right away. The second, the letter A, is amend the incentives. Right now, the system is skewed towards the granting of patents, like I mentioned. The financial incentives are set up towards grant, not towards rejecting, and so we really need to reform the law to address that as well. The third is increasing participation. Right now, patent system serves primarily corporations, and we think that we need to democratize the system, make it transparent and accountable to serve people, not just corporations. The fourth is standing. The public does not have legal standing to go to court after a patent is granted. It's just for corporations. And so we want to see the right to go to court be expanded to include members of the public, particularly patients. And then lastly, we need to expand oversight. There is no independent unit monitoring the Patent Office right now and reporting to Congress. That's how we would catch the bad decisions. That's how we would have been able to spot trends like the fact that today the top selling drugs have on average 125 patents filed on them and monopolies are being lengthened from 20 years to nearly 40 years. So we believe that stronger oversight would help curb those types of problems.
3: The interesting thing also about your framework that you just outlined is this doesn't have anything to do with our healthcare system, right? These are all things that have to do with the legal structures we set up to advantage prescription drugs in the market. And oftentimes when we talk about prescription drug pricing, we are talking more about our broken healthcare system, which brings them, kind of gets them in the hands of people. Which is interesting because... It compounds the problems that you're talking about, right? Because if the drug is expensive in the market, when it goes through our healthcare system, that only unfortunately makes it more expensive. Yeah. You are compounding a problem, a market failure, and then putting it through a system that then delivers those drugs at an even higher price. That is, uh, you know, our our healthcare you know delivery system for prescription drugs is not transparent and is also broken.
1: That's right. What you're saying is so important right now because I think there's a huge spotlight on the healthcare system and there's not one on the patent system. There needs to be. The patent system is a black box. People do not know about it. They do not understand it. They don't even know that there's a connection between the patent system and their everyday lives. So that is exactly what we're trying to change right now.
0: Can I ask you a personal question? Like, What's your background? How did you get into this mess? Sure. So
1: I <laughs> went to law school <laughs> in the early 2000s, and when I graduated, I went to India, actually, and worked at a legal aid office. And most of my clients either had cancer or HIV or TB or other diseases, and they lived below the poverty line. And medicines were that existed were being priced out of reach. And so it was there that I really learned about patent system and how it affects drug prices. And I dedicated the rest of my life to this work.
0: And your organization operates globally?
1: We do. We work globally. And in 2016, we were asked to launch a U.S. program to focus on the drug pricing issue here. So we maintain active litigation in many countries. But here in the U.S., we've shifted really from thinking about litigation to really focusing on these investigations and starting to educate more and more people to understand the system so people can become agents for change themselves.
0: You know, in order to fix this, we're going to have to make some really profound policy changes, and those policy changes will be fiercely resisted by the pharmaceutical companies that have so taken advantage Of these circumstances in the public, so it's going to take a lot of organizing and a lot of education.
2: It's
1: both. It's policy change and it's also culture change. We're used to not paying attention to the patent system at all. You know, for most other government agencies, whether it's the FBI or ICE, we're following. You know, in the news, patent office is responsible, according to their own website, I think, for upwards of thirty-eight percent of our GDP, and yet. We know nothing about it. And so I think that shift is what's going to be most catalytic and needs to start happening now.
0: And by the way, it's not just pharma that is uh, (laughs) manipulating the patent system. It's taking place in the technology business and in all, all tons of other businesses where we've allowed, you know, our podcast is devoted to revealing the evils of neoliberalism. And all of these things are connected, giving corporations more power in the service of the idea that by doing so, everyone will benefit, uh, you know, that, you know, you find it everywhere, everywhere. That's right.
3: You know, I know you're early in your work here in the United States, but do you have any success stories that you'd like to end on, uh, either from the U.S. or from another country that you guys have been working in?
1: You know, globally, we're most known for our impact litigation, so we first filed cases on unjust HIV drug patents in the early 2000s. And those cases were able to bring down the prices of medicines by up to 87%. On three drugs alone, we were able to save health systems half a billion dollars. Now that we're working here in the US, we are seeing the early successes of our investigations. Over-patented, overpriced went viral in 2018. You know, it had something like six million views, and we've seen Congress take it up in hearings. But the success we're really looking for now is the day when everyday Americans are going to know what's going on in the patent office and are going to be engaging. And so that's really the direction we're headed in and what we hope to achieve in the next five years.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a great goal. So we always ask our guests this one question, which is, uh, why do you do this work?
3: I do this work
1: because I think that our children and grandchildren are going to feel the effects of the choices we make right now. Every time we go to the pharmacy, we're feeling the effects of the system. It is only going to grow by the time my son is grown up. And so I, that's why I do this work.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us. This has been fascinating. And uh, good luck on your work. I hope it goes well. Thank you so
3: much for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: This is really, really super interesting. Thank you.
3: Yeah, thank you for joining us.
0: Appreciate it. Bye bye. Bye. So that was an amazing conversation, and in it, I think both you and I sort of audibly gasped around this fact of how the drug companies are manipulating the patent system to extend the length of the monopoly from 20 to 40 years or even longer. Uh, Honestly, I had no idea.
3: Oh, I I agree 100%. I (laughs) mean, the level of dysfunction in the market that uh, came out in uh, that conversation is amazing. It's
0: so terrible. And, you know, I've been around some pretty awful and crafty people. I just had no idea that that was going on. It's really... That is super dispiriting. And, um,
3: well, and the pay to keep people out of the market. Oh, my too. God. I mean, just the level just, of nefarious yeah. activities to try to ensure that people can have access to life changing drugs
0: at a reasonable price is yeah. just, it is shocking. Well, now we're going to talk to our friend John Arnold. I hope what he tells us is not as upsetting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: John Arnold. I'm a recovering member of the finance industry who now focuses full time on our philanthropic efforts. So, Laura and I co founded and co chair the Arnold Ventures, uh, which is a policy foundation.
0: Uh, John and I have gotten to know each other through uh, the Giving Pledge, which is, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a club. <laughs> for wealthy citizens who are willing to dedicate themselves to philanthropy. And it has been super fun to watch what you guys have done and do. And could you describe a little bit more about what Arnold Ventures does in the broadest sense? And then we'll zoom into pharma.
2: Sure. I think uh, it leads back to our view of what the role of philanthropy should be. And if you step back and look at it, About 60% of the economy is the private sector, and about 40% is government, and 2% is philanthropy or charity. And so the question is, what's the right role of that 2%? And when you take away giving to cultural institutions and take away giving to religious institutions, you're down to about 1%. And so we viewed uh, the best role of philanthropy is trying to identify the areas where there was either a market failure or a political failure in the system. That is, what are the problems that private industry is not incentivized to tackle and that government for some reason is refusing to tackle? And so that's led us to kind of a number of issues of public policy, including education, public finance, criminal justice. And then the one that I think has the most market failures and political failures of all, uh, that of healthcare.
0: Yeah, your commitment to structural change is super inspiring, and and uh, it's something that we watch, our team at Civic Ventures watches super closely. But let's dive into pharma. So can you tell us first what the problem is?
2: So a Hatch-Waxman Act was passed in 1984, and it set the framework for how the pharmaceutical industry is structured that largely persists to today. There are two primary problems. I think the law was generally very good. Is two things have changed. Number one is um, the bill was written when most drugs were small molecule for large population groups, while today the most expensive drugs are biologics and treat small populations. And then the second problem is that just like any industry with large financial rewards, whether tech, finance, or healthcare just over the years, that very smart people have figured out what the loopholes are in the system and created or found ways around the spirit of the rules. They've found ways to abuse the system. Yeah. And so the question is, kind of how do you create a more modern framework that addresses those issues?
0: Right. But can you dimensionalize in economic terms the size of the problem or the nature of the problem?
2: Total pharmaceutical spending is somewhere between fifteen and eighteen percent of total healthcare spending. Total healthcare spending is about eighteen percent of the total GDP, and both parts are growing. So healthcare is growing greater and greater part of GDP and pharmaceutical spend is growing in relation to healthcare. And so you have these two things that are both growing greater than inflation, and that creates the structural problem. So after continuing for a couple of decades, Uh, we get to a point where the system is just breaking, that consumers can't afford their pharmaceuticals, governments can't afford the large subsidies that they're providing, employers can't afford it. And to top it off... We're not getting good access. So you would think that for the amount of money that we're spending, that people should get access to the drugs that they need. But the United States is paying the highest prices in the world and has very mediocre access.
0: Right. Just in round numbers, healthcare spending in the United States now is in the range of three and a half trillion dollars. And pharma is six, seven hundred billion of that, plus or minus. Right. Right. You know, one of the ways in which the pharma industry pushes back on this egregious practice is to say, well, that's not what consumers pay, right? The insurance companies pick it up. But that's bogus, too, right?
2: Right. The insurance company, whoever's subsidizing that, at the end of the day, it comes back to the consumer, right? whether that government... We're all paying. Right, we're all paying, or whether it's your employer. So there's been lots of talks about how median income has stagnated in this country. And that's very true from a salary standpoint. From a total compensation standpoint, it tells a different story because of the price escalation of health care. Right. And that employers provide or subsidize significant health care expense that the total compensation is going up, but the individuals aren't seeing it because it's being eaten up by health expense. Even more telling than what the profit margin is between cost of production and what you're selling it for in the United States is what these same manufacturers are willing to sell it at to our economic peers so why is the company selling it in Canada at $30 a vial when it's 10x the price in the United States
0: right I always like to sort of characterize the size of these problems so if have you ever thought about the problem in this way If Americans are presently spending $700 billion a year on drugs, if you fix the system, how much would we be spending? In other words, if we were Swiss or Canadian or Japanese, how much would that $700 billion bill go down?
2: So there is an interesting proposed legislation by the House right now that does a number of things that includes uh, Medicare negotiation and CBO has scored that, and the projected sp- savings for when the bill kicks in middle of next decade is about 75 billion a year. Uh-huh. To take that in context, middle of next decade, the projected global pharmaceutical revenues will be about a trillion and a half dollars a year, growing at four to five percent a year. So if you do that math, 1.5 trillion dollars growing at 75 billion a year. the house bill will be almost exactly the same as one year's price increase for the pharmaceutical industry. And that, just that, is being labeled by the industry as a a radical bill that's going to destroy innovation and the incentives to innovate. And it's just a crazy argument.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the classic, what we call trickle-down argument. (laughs) Is it anything which constrains us will harm you, right? Right. It's not that our profits will go down and our executive bonuses will go down. That's not the problem. The problem is we will stop innovating and you'll all die. (laughs) Right. One of the most exciting, or I'm not sure if you call it exciting, but certainly snazzy and enticing projects that you're working on is something called Civica RX. Can you tell us about that?
2: One of the market failures in pharmaceuticals is that There are some drugs that are relatively low-revenue drugs, that once they go generic, it is no longer a regulated monopoly, but becomes more of a natural monopoly, that it really only makes sense for one producer to be making the drug. And if there is competition, the profit margins are so slight on the generic drug companies that oftentimes they'll either skimp on quality control, or they will... Just stop making the pill because the production line is better producing something else. Right? So, you'll have cases where uh, a drug goes generic, it starts out with three manufacturers. Over time, you only end up with one manufacturer. And oftentimes, that manufacturer is not very reliable because they have no incentive to invest in quality control. So, once it's down to that one manufacturer, you can have monopolized pricing. That is, you can have these price spikes because there's no option. And it takes an investment and time for a competitor to re-enter the market. So for a period of time, there is only one provider. And again, that provider isn't producing the highest quality drugs. And so you sometimes have shortages based upon a manufacturing defect. So a group of hospital systems and three philanthropies got together and decided that the way around this problem, this market failure, was to create a nonprofit generic drug company. Now, to date, the focus has solely been on Part B, or the drugs that are infused at the hospital. So not drugs that you buy at the pharmacy, but the hospital-infused drugs, again, because the founding partners were a number of hospital systems. But it was, if we can create the drugs in a safe way, and in a manner that guarantees stable pricing and low pricing, that that creates a huge benefit to society.
0: It sounds like an extraordinary civic opportunity. Can you give us a perspective on what the price differences would be between what Civic RX could deliver for a particular thing versus what people are forced to pay in the existing pharma market?
2: Sure. So the effort is relatively new. We just Mm -hmm. released our first drugs uh, this year. And the highest priority to date has been drugs where the production pipeline has had a long history of being tainted. So oftentimes these drugs end up on shortages and a doctor will order a drug, find out that the hospital or their uh, distributor doesn't have access to the drug and has to use something else. And so... Even with that, with the priority being on drugs that are in shortages rather than drugs that have had price spikes, you know there are some drugs where we're able to go in at 20, 25 percent of current market price.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. But does the ambition of the effort include things like insulin? Like, why not make insulin right and sell um, it so- at three times cost of good salt?
2: <laughs> Yeah. So the, right. the regulatory framework for insulin is changing in the next two years. And the expectation is that we will have a price-competitive generic insulin that's very similar to today's insulin that you buy branded um, within those two years. And it is a huge market, as you can imagine. So the private industry should be well-incentivized to come in and make those prices come down. mm mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, the market failure on insulin is less clear um, than the market failure on some of the small revenue drugs. Okay. What has been the failure on insulin has been a policy failure, that the regulatory framework was not set up well to encourage or to even allow the generic insulins. And so that's why they've been delayed vis-a-vis insulin in other countries.
0: Just being ambitious, John... There's no limit to the number of things an organization like this could take on. I mean, there's a massive incentive within the hospital industry, I would presume, to buy these drugs at good prices.
2: But I I think the private market, private industry, whenever it's competitive, generally leads to a good result. Yeah. And so what's the role of... Philanthropy and of nonprofits, if the private sector is behaving appropriately and is aligned with the interests of society. And so there's a belief, we'll see what happens, but there's a belief that when generic insulin or the biosimilar ins- insulin is available, that uh, it will be competitive and that a number of for profit providers will be creating a competitive marketplace with the retail price being much, much closer to marginal costs versus what it is today.
0: Yeah. But the world is your oyster. Like, I just can't think of a more fun project than to just sort of pick the top 100 selling products, figure out what the real marginal costs are, and just start whacking away. It's just such an exciting way to create positive change and, frankly, to animate a policy framework I mean that creates a lot of motivations <laughs> to fix the policy framework. I've done a lot of policy change and external pressure is the secret sauce.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. The rules and regulations of this industry need to be updated to the types of drugs that we use in 2019 not the drugs that we used in 1984.
0: So if John Arnold was benevolent dictator, this is a question we often ask our guests. What would he do? And therefore, by extension, what should the listeners of this podcast prefer and yearn for from a policy perspective?
2: So the policy solution, I think, has three components to it. And the first component is we have to end the anti-competitive behaviors that manufacturers engage in today. And this stems back from that the spirit of the rules and the loopholes that have been found around those have now become so great that in many aspects, like EpiPen, like insulin, that they're not competitive, even though they should be. So there's a whole kind of framework of solutions under that category of ending the anti-competitive behaviors. Okay. The second broad category is we have to align the incentives of the industry and end the market distortions. So things like PBM behaviors where they've been incentivized in many cases to choose the drug or procure the drug that has the highest rebate rather than the one that's the cheapest. Mm-hmm. Um, things like drug coupons where you're trying to make it free for the patient to choose the more expensive drug. So it costs more for society even though that there's a cheaper drug that's the has the exact same efficacy. Boy. Um, pay, paying doctors consulting fees to go – use and prescribe your drug or co-opting the patient groups. So you know, that whole category of where are the market distortions? Yeah. And then third, and I think one that you can't get around, is what's the right price? That what's the launch price and how much should price inflation be? So this question about how do you price a drug that's been granted a regulated monopoly by the government, the U.S. taxpayer has subsidized the creation of, where third parties subsidize most, if not all of the purchase price, and that is important to human vitality. You know, what's the right price in that circumstance? So if you think about the utility sector right, with water, you know, it meets many of those criteria, right? It's not a regulated monopoly, it's a natural monopoly, but there's strong price regulation. And in America, and this is counter to how our economic peers have dealt with the problem, But in America, we've been unwilling to put any real price regulation on what the right price of drugs while they're under the exclusivity period should be.
0: Right. Would you personally be an advocate for that kind of price regulation?
2: There's a concept of value-based pricing Uh where you look at what's the value of a drug. And it's typically calculated by what's the quality. Q-A-L-Y, Quality Adjusted Life Years. Yeah. So by taking the drug, how much does it improve life versus what's the cost of it? Other countries have all faced this same problem as to how do you price a drug that's a monopoly and that is important to human vitality. And they've more or less all ended up with some type of system that has a value-based pricing mechanism. Okay. And that is a drug that improves quality of life by X, has a maximum price of Y. And largely, the drug companies all abide by that. They all make money, they all have the incentives in the system to do so. It encourages drug companies to focus their R&D on things that really do increase quality adjusted life years. Yeah. It creates a fair price and starts creating a common currency between pharmaceuticals and other healthcare spending. In a world with no constraints, you could say, that's double the price of pharmaceuticals. That way we create even more incentive for innovation. Yeah, right. But we don't live in a world with no constraints. We live in a world with very real constraints. The first is that there's a very real relationship between the price and access. So the higher the price, the less people have access to yeah. it. We have a lot of drugs today that that people should be taking and aren't taking just because of price. Right. It all kind of fades back to, how do you pay for quality or pay for value yeah. in the healthcare space and recognize that there are trade-offs that a dollar spent in the, in the pharmaceutical system is a dollar less that you can use to provide more access to healthcare or to hire more general practitioners or to put to medical devices or even to put to housing.
0: John Arnold, there are friends of ours who would call that position socialist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, a strongly disagree. And I think if you look at... <laughs> I,
0: do. I do too. But.
2: So if you look at the House, the Senate, and the White House today, yeah. right, where you've seen um, different proposals emerge from, from all three places, and the House bill, which the industry is running around using the words Pelosi and extremist in every sentence that they have to describe it, if you look really into the details of that bill, it's largely... It has two components to it. One, it's the, it mirrors the issues in the Senate finance bill that was passed with bipartisan um, consensus that really gets at this anti-competitive behavior and aligning incentives. And then it combines a feature that the White House that Trump speaks about, which is setting a reference price, that is what is Europe and our other economic peers paying for a drug? Right. And that we should be paying some uh, price that's based on that. Yeah. Right? And the House bill combines those two things, and the industry goes crazy and says it's an extremist bill.
0: That's right. A big government attack on freedom. A job-killing big government attack on freedom.
2: I'm a huge defender of private industry when there aren't externalities and when it's competitive.
0: Yeah. But I'm with you. We have,
2: yeah. we have the product here <laughs> by its nature. We're granting a regulated monopoly on the product, so you you must have some type of price regulation on it. Counterbalance. Also, yeah. we, we don't allow the payers to say no. Right? Medicare is not allowed to say no. Correct. If a doctor prescribes it, even the private uh, insurers aren't allowed to say no. So you know the whole notion of a demand curve.
0: It doesn't um, exist. You
2: know, largely doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, right. And, exactly.
2: And so h- how do you price that? How does the free market work? If we want to have free market principles, then we need a free market. But there's no free market on this.
0: In healthcare, stuff. right. John, this has been absolutely fascinating. I want to finish with a question we ask every guest, which is, why do you do this work?
2: At its core, our mission our philanthropic work is to maximize opportunity and to minimize injustice. And with pharmaceutical pricing, we saw the system that was being abused, not meeting the needs of society. And Laura and I are in this unique position where we have the resources, the time, and the interests to work on this problem. And so we're, we're proud to try to create a system that benefits society and serves the interests of everyday Americans better.
0: I love it. Do you need any more money for your Civica RX? Uh
2: we always need money. <laughs> <laughs> We're really looking forward. There's a there's a number of of um, hospital systems that have signed on. I think more and more seeing the the value of it. Yeah. Uh, there's a chance that we start a part D version of it so the drugs that you know with the consumers buying it directly through the pharmacy and I think at that point there would be opportunities for any other philanthropist to step in and um, provide some funding.
0: Okay, I might be down with that. It's a super cool no, project. Give you a call. <laughs>
2: really
0: I'm really proud of you for doing it. So cool. Got
2: your name down.
0: Okay. All right, all right, John. Thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Okay. Take care. Take care, bud. Bye. Bye. So Jasmine, those were fascinating conversations and yikes, I learned a lot.
3: Absolutely. I mean, they, they were great conversations. I mean, it's no wonder that 80% of people think that, you know, drug prices are way too high and want Congress to act.
0: Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's a complicated problem, but it is just one of those perfect instantiations of how neoliberalism and the neoliberal perspective and the policy agenda that followed from it ended up benefiting a few people at the top and harming almost everyone else. And all the same tricks were used here as they are in other domains from, you know, the classic trickle-down thing the pharma uses, which is, well, if anything you do to regulate our ability to gouge consumers will harm the very people we intend to help, right? Absolutely. That, yeah, that Well, Absolutely. then we won't be able to invent drugs anymore and you'll all die, But right?
3: importantly, <laughs> we will rig the rules to benefit us yes. while telling you that you shouldn't regulate anything yes. else.
0: Which sounds a lot like if you raise wages, it'll kill jobs, right? Like it's always the same. I mean, if there's anything that, uh, useful that we can do in this podcast, it's to inoculate our listeners against those claims. That when you hear that nonsense, you automatically know that they're lying. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure if I should be happy or sad about the stuff that we learned today. But for sure, it's stuff that people should know because it's going to be a long fight to get it all straightened out.
3: Absolutely. And I think these interviews help people understand who's benefiting from this broken system, who's being harmed, and a little bit about what you can do about it. Yep. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.